I'm going to give the children a quick moment to get back to their seats because I'm easily distracted. <laughs> so we have a, a, a church planter that our church supports named Mark Horn. He's preached here a few times. Man, I love Mark he tells great stories and he keeps us informed about how God is at work down in Ocean Springs as they begin to a church plant. And so I, he gave me permission to steal a little bit of an illustration for him because I thought this was beautiful. One of Mark's favorite beautiful places down in Ocean Springs is uh, in a street called Washington Street and it is lined by oak trees. And it's down in the art and music district. And the oak trees, of course, being in even further south than us, have, tend to have moss dripping on them. And it just got, it's a really beautiful atmosphere as you see these very old oak trees lining the street, providing kind of a tunnel of shade in the daytime on a hot day. But Mark has noticed that at night, it looks pretty different. It kind of is eerie, even a little bit creepy. Like something, like something right out of Scooby-Doo, but as, as, as those trees block out even the streetlights, it's very dark and it's not safe. So not only is it a little bit creepy and eerie, it's a place where you'd be pretty exposed. And so people in Ocean Springs do not typically spend a lot of time on Washington Street, where it meets Government Street, late at night. It's dark and eerie and dangerous. But something happened this year. For the first time in uh, a memorable history, the city decided that they were going to put Christmas lights on those trees. And they put thousands and thousands of sparkling bright bulbs on those trees. And it changed everything. All of a sudden, people would go out and walk and enjoy the beautiful trees at night as they sparkled and radiated. And Mark describes that as it brought a sense of joy and delight and hope. You see, light is powerful. And as we look at our text today, we will see that there is a contrast between darkness and light. And in one sense, we know it. We know it viscerally. We know it when we see it and feel it. But I want us to be reminded of the power of light to even change the dark, eerie, creepy, dangerous places to be places of joy, hope and delight. If you would turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, we'll be reading verses 1 through 7. This is the word of the Lord. Again, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who, who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has a light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. 
For every boot of the trampling warrior of, in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For us, or for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You see, darkness is the place where criminals like to do their work, isn't it? Can you imagine trying to commit a crime when everybody can see you? When that kind of thing happens, it shocks us. It wasn't too long ago that a car was broken into middle of the day during a, a little town uh, festival here in Brookhaven. And as I heard people tell me about it, it wasn't so much shock that a crime had happened. It was the boldness to do it in the light. You see, because light reveals. Light actually tends to bring judgment on the wicked because when the wicked are exposed to light, everybody sees them for what they are, and judgment is the natural response. If we look at our text, we see two aspects of the enemies of Israel, those who are wicked, the oppressors that are brought to the surface. One, they are breaking we see them breaking and burn, and two, we see them burning. Look at verse four. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. You see, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, these are meant to be images of weapons, of, of the kinds of things used to beat down God's people. Remember, God's people in the time of Isaiah, they were in exile. They had been conquered. They had a memory of their glorious kingdom, but now they were a sorrowful people. And it was only going to get worse. All of the prophets in this moment were saying, you think it's bad now, Israel? It's going to get worse. Your sins have brought God's wrath upon you. The oppressor is here, and another oppressor will come. And so, this gloom and anguish that our text starts with in verses one and two describes Israel. It describes them in sorrowful conditions. It describes them in darkness. Even in the land of deep darkness, does that sound familiar? Deep darkness, does that sound like Psalm 23? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The people of God were sorrowful. They were beaten down. They were burdened by oppressors. It seemed hopeless. But then God tells them the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor will be broken. Brothers and sisters, the justice of God is glorious for those whom he loves. But for those who act wickedly, for those who oppress the righteous, for those who act in defiance of our holy God. Judgment is real, and the strong enemy that seems insurmountable, the strong enemy who seems to be the one who will rule over with authority forever, it feels that way. God says he's going to take their powerful weapons and snap them like twigs. 
What a joyous hope for those who are oppressed. What a frightful judgment for the oppressor. And then it says in verse 5, there will be burning for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is pretty graphic, right? If we think about a battle back in the the, um, uh, first century, you would have had warriors going head to head against other warriors, bodies fall on the ground. It's a messy, horrible business. It's the kind of thing that even if you survive the battle, if you got cut and wounded, you're likely to get infections and suffer loss of limb and life. And so when it says that the the, uh, trampling boot and garments rolled in blood will be burned, it's, it's actually describing an end, not just of warfare, but of the suffering that results from warfare. Again, this is, a, this, this is a judgment against the very warriors that work for the oppressive powers, those who would wreak havoc, those who would exercise evil intentions and send warriors out. Even the warriors who are under their command will suffer and their very weapons will be burned. This reminds us of Psalm 46. This is beautiful hope and promise for those who are oppressed, those who recognize our brokenness and our need. And it's judgment against those who oppose the will of our holy God. And so while we have this beautiful Christmas message, we're we're very familiar with verses 6 and 7, aren't we? Verses 6 and 7 stand in contrast to what comes before for a reason. It's intended, I believe, to actually cause us to do two things. First, ask what side are we on? Are we on God's side? Are we on the side of the Holy One of Israel? Are we on the side of the righteous? If so, we know we feel oppressed, so have hope. Cling to that hope because the powers of death, the powers of our enemy cannot overpower our Holy God. But if you find yourself, when you ask what side are you on, if you find yourself saying, actually, I don't know that I trust this holy God. I'm not sure I want to follow his ways. There's an invitation. There's a warning here to say, stop. Look at what lays ahead of you if you don't change your course. Maybe you should consider the power and glory and goodness of this holy God. This actually invites those who might find themselves as enemies of God to repent and turn. Instead of being the oppressors, they would then become the redeemed. That's the hope. And so we get a picture then of the blessing in contrast. Several years ago, I got to go hiking, and uh, we were actually going to a pretty high altitude. And in India, the jungle actually goes all the tree lines much higher than it is here in the United States. So we camped in nasty cold rain at 12,000 foot elevation and was surrounded by soggy, nasty plants. It was one of those hikes where I was thinking to myself, I don't want to wake up tomorrow. I don't want to do this. I just want to go home and, and get in a warm bed. But what happened that next morning? As we woke up early, as the sun started to peak over one mountain range, we could see the moon on the other side. We had this remnant, this backdrop of the cold, soggy, horrible night. 
But as the sun shone, we could see the peak we are going to at about 17,000 feet, shining with ice and, and snow. It was glorious looking. And so all of a sudden I had, in, with the backdrop of the night, my hope. And all of a sudden, instead of wanting to go home, what did I want to do? I wanted to get my boots on and get moving because this was going to be a beautiful day. It was a new day as the dawn broke in and changed my perspective brought, and brought light out of darkness. We see that same sense going on here. We have a new dawn coming. That's the promise to Israel and it's what we receive today is blessing. Verse two describes growth, first and foremost. A people who are oppressed, a people who are beaten down, a people who seem to be without hope. We're told they have seen a great light and they will grow. They, in verse three, you have multiplied the nation with growth in a nation comes strength. With growth in a nation, frankly, comes wealth and power and stability. We're reminded that God, even in the middle of oppression, was at work. At work. But then as we were reminded that the Savior has come, the child is gonna, the child Savior, the King is gonna come in verse six, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. He's going to rule. Now think about the importance of our rulers in this world. Good rulers provide for their people, provide stability, provide hope, bad rulers, and lead their people to destruction. And we are told that our good Savior is going to rule. In verse 6, it says he will, the government shall be upon his shoulders. And in verse 7, it tells us the increase of his government will be, have no end. The increase of his power and authority to rule in justice and truth and goodness will not end and then not only is he going to rule, but he starts to uh, share his name. As we were telling the children, names have power. And the name of our ruler, the authoritative one who will rule over his people with an unending kingdom as his power continues to increase and extend throughout the world. What, here are his names. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. A wonderful counselor. Now, some of us might immediately go like to the clinical, the counselor who's gonna help you through your emotions. And there's an aspect which that sort of applies. But a counselor in this perspective is the one who gives wise counsel and leads with discernment. We don't want a ruler who is a fool. We don't want a ruler who will lead us down ways that lead to destruction. We want a ruler who is wise and knows what is good and can direct his people in a way to act that brings God glory and honor and brings flourishing to his people. We have a wonderful counselor. That's the first name of our ruler, Mighty God. Mighty God. Make no mistake, Jesus is divine. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God incarnate. There will be those in your life who might tell you Jesus never claimed to be God. We can go through the Gospels and tell you all the ways Jesus did. It's, it's amazing how many ways and, and with what clarity Jesus describes his uh, divinity and his authority and his right to rule. And here's an example of an unambiguous no way to argue against it. You cannot deny the fact that Jesus, our Savior, is able to save. He's able to rule. Why? Because he's God. 
He's not some clever guy. He's not a guy who whipped up an army. He's God. He has the might and ability and the will to save. Everlasting Father. In a broken world, we have to acknowledge that we don't always uh, have the best perception of what a father would be. And this can be a struggle for many of us. And I confess that that is a reality for all of us in some measure because even the best worldly fathers fall short of the perfection that that God calls us to. I fail my children all the time. I speak harshly when I ought to be gracious. I give counsel that is not helpful sometimes. So we have to acknowledge that when we hear everlasting father, we need a little bit of a thought correction. The father as we're supposed to understand God as Father, is the perfect picture of Father. The one who loves unconditionally. The one who knows his children so well that he never misspeaks. The one who never speaks harshly when he ought to speak gently. And the one who never undersells when he needs to correct with urgency. When we're going for that electrical socket, we need that urgent warning, right? And so God speaks to us. He knows us. He cares for us. He provides for us in perfect love. And then the prince of peace. Not only is he a peacemaker, a peace bringer, he's the one who actually rules over all peace. He is so characterized by peace that that's part of his name. He's not a prince who brings peace. He's the prince of peace. He's the one who rules with authority and wisdom and power, with perfect love. He is long-suffering and he will not abandon his children and he brings peace so that we might be restored to relationship with our holy God and have peace within and extend peace without by his grace. And so we are told that he will ex- establish justice and peace as we try to live out that life in this new dawn We don't do it by our wisdom and our strength. We do it because our Savior rules. We do it by the power of the Holy Spirit who is living in our hearts, conforming us to his image. He is is ongoing, establishing justice and peace. So yes, we are called to love justice and peace. We are called to act in our personal lives, in our businesses, in our work, in our school, in, in, our, in our society, in every sphere of our life with justice. We have to have a passion for justice as we imitate our Savior because we are image bearers. And we have to love peace. We have to be peacemakers, peace lovers, those who delight when we see peace extended, even to our enemies. And that is hard. But that's what we're called to be as those who live in the kingdom of this great Savior, the promised one who will buy back his people. So what does it look like to be those who are children of God? Well, we should be a lot like the Christmas lights on Washington Street. We should be everywhere we go a shining light that points people to hope and joy. And we should have delight in life as we celebrate our gospel hope through our saving Lord who rules with wisdom, power, fatherly love, and peace. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do indeed rule, that even 800 years before you were born, we had this very specific promise that you would be exactly who you are and exactly the way you are so that you would be able to be the fulfillment of promise 
Draw your people to yourself and bring redemption to a broken world. Cause us to be lights by your grace. Give us delight and joy as we do so because we know we are loved and accepted by a Father who will never abandon us and who will always fight for us and you will break the weapons of our enemies so that we might have peace with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.